right, all right, all right. That's the foghorn, and we know what that means. It is time for the Cavaships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervella. Coming up, from the high seas to, to the littorals, to the dreaded territory inside the Beltway, the U.S. Navy and the Sea Services continue to deploy, patrol, fly, sail, operate, plan, train, and budget. Welcome to our first Cavaships podcast year-ender, where we'll look back at some of the highlights of 2021, take some pot shots at what we think the coming year will hold. Joining in the discussion today with us are two veteran defense reporters, Marcus Weisgerber of Defense One and Sam Legrone of USNI News. Welcome, Marcus and Sam. Hey, thanks for having me, Cavus. All right. So, operationally, let's do, let's do this by topics. So, operationally, the U.S. is out of Afghanistan, and the nature of deployed operations is already reflecting that. Perhaps just today, when, as Sam reported, the newly deployed carrier Harry S. Truman is being kept in the Mediterranean rather than continue to the Mideast. So what changes are you seeing overall? I'll start with uh, Marcus. Well, the, you know, the, obviously the big thing is, you know, no troops. We're starting a year for the first time in 20 whatever years with no, no troops in Afghanistan. Uh, so what, what does what it, what does the future hold for us in, in the in the Middle East? What what, what does the Biden administration and its you know the new budget that is expected in a, just a couple months? What what does that do in terms of force posture and how will they implement this um, global uh, posture review of which you know it's largely just a classified document of which we haven't really learned much, but we just know it's going to focus on China. So. For me, operationally, that's that's kind of what what, what what I'm watching is you know how how many how much of the force structure in the Middle East changes, if at all. What happens to you know the in Bahrain? What happens to IUD and Al Dafra, air, air air bases, and you know where where do all those forces go, or do we just see more rotational? You know, do we see them redeployed back to the U.S. and more rotational deployments from there to points in Asia like like uh, Australia? Uh, Japan and elsewhere. Right. So, Sam, there's no aircraft carrier now in the Indian Ocean, and that's been the case for a couple months. Uh, what other changes have you been seeing in the past year? I think to echo Marcus's point is specifically with the Navy is what's that laydown going to look like in the Middle East? Um, I think for the longest time you had a CVN kind of sh shackled to the Gulf of Oman and the North Arabian Sea. Uh, as a hedge against Iran. And that was that posture going back to May 2019 that you had that sort of persistent carrier presence. And now we're starting to see that change. So since the Reagan left, oh, help me out, Brain, I think in April, um, you haven't seen a carrier there for for a while. And uh, oh, I might be August. Hang on. I've, uh, wait. Anyway, uh, so that emphasis on uh, the Middle East is becoming less and less of an issue specifically for those big maritime set pieces. I think you're going to see an argmu there probably, and I think you're going to see um, a lot of individual surface ships uh, keeping up with uh, the maintaining the, that merchant or that presence to keep the merchant traffic you know, as stable as it can, you know, with Iran, you know, randomly deciding to hijack, you know, oil tankers whenever they feel like it. Right. Um, but I think you're really going to start to see 
more, I mean, based on our deployment numbers, when we're looking at the carriers, you're starting to see more of an emphasis, particularly on the Western Pacific. Uh, and then, you know, going to be more in the Atlantic and more in the Med. And we'll, we'll, we'll see how that kind of shakes out from there. The, uh, the, the Reagan, by the way, left, um, left the CENTCOM operating area in September. Chris, I meant to say you? September, Chris. <laughs> My spreadsheet is, is still loading. One of those. Chris, what do you think? So I, I don't think we know what, what's going to happen yet in, uh, in the Middle East. I, th I think they're still trying to figure that out. Um, and, and I think the, the deployments, um, you know, have, have looked that way and probably will continue to look that way. Um, you, you know, as you mentioned in the, the lead, uh, the Harry S. Truman um, has been requested to stay in the med as a hedge against, uh, you know, Russian bad behavior and a way of, of reassuring allies. Um, but if the Iranians do something stupid, I mean, it's a matter of days before you could get that strike group, uh, you know, through the ditch and, and over into Fifth Fleet. Um, so, I, I mean, you, you know, this is the flexibility that uh, that those forces give. Uh, I, I think that, you know, a carrier not being tethered to Fifth Fleet is probably a good thing for, for everybody. Um, but I don't, you know, as, as both Marcus and Sam alluded, I, I don't think you'll see naval forces, uh, you know, completely, uh, at least big deck naval forces, com completely turn their backs on uh, on Fifth Fleet. For me, Chris, though, the, the big things that I think kind of, at least in that, let's start in that area, the big things that, uh, you know, operationally rippled for me were um, the fact that we even sent the Reagan uh, to um, cover down on the Afghan retreat and what that meant, um, you know, glass half full was, hey, that's the flexibility in naval forces and they were the ideal carrier to go and that's why you have naval forces they can cover down. The glass half empty was, it shows just how, um, you know, run hard and put away wet the carrier force is that you have to take the forward deployed carrier and send it halfway across the world to uh, to cover down. So it, it, it has been another year in which we've run these forces hard um and you know we, we've seen some results both operationally and from a material condition standpoint um what uh what that running hard means for the force so the of course the the carl vinson strike group deployed from the west coast and pretty much covered the reagan and the western pacific for a lot of that time um i know that um congressman luria is in, in particular has um spoken out about uh, she has problems with the Reagan deployment going to the Indian Ocean to support the withdrawal. On the other hand, I, I sort of agree that that's, that's one reason why you have a forward deployed carrier can do that. It wasn't seen as a very, as a mission that was going to take that long, and it didn't. It was about, I think about three months, two or three months, um, she was in the area. But um, Vincent has, is still out there doing the Western Pacific thing, and that's, that's its own statement. She spent only a very few uh, very short time and then the Indian Ocean but we certainly haven't had two carriers you know the, the East Coast carriers have not been deployed for most of the year Harry now is, is out there um, and that's you know the the preponderance of carriers deploying has been from the West Coast on the other hand that's where they they have one more than on the, on the West Coast than they do on the East Coast in any case um, I have noticed uh, the the profile of Western Pacific deployments 
seems to have been to have picked up with with uh, in, ships essentially doing independent deployers um the um destroyers the the three littoral combat ships that have been in the west pacific all for some months now um the presence is still up it's being being handled by single ships more uh it would seem than uh, than groups but the other, other thing that has definitely continued is the long stream of international engagements that they go out of their way to stop for at least a day if not five or seven days um, to operate with foreign navies whoever's in the area in the pacific it's anybody who comes along in the atlantic it's more organized with nato but um these these multinational formations have really become a a, a running constant stream that it's all aimed at China. It's all aimed at, uh, you know, it's not just the United States. It's the United States and Japan and Korea and Australia. And, of course, the British uh, carrier, the HMS Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group, immense, huge change in that regard for the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy, who's not had a carrier of that capability since the late 70s. And they put this international strike group together international because there was a Dutch frigate assigned to it. It was an American destroyer and half of the aircraft on the uh, on the carrier itself uh, were U.S. Marine aircraft. Um, but that was a capability that we've not the, the, the Brits have been planning for and paying for for a long time. And uh, that's a major change. It really has gotten under the, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's really bugged the Chinese. The Chinese media is constantly criticizing these deployments and these operations. And it's not, it, you know, the mainstream media in the United States doesn't notice most of this stuff unless there's a crisis. But the Chinese dream out of, uh, put out a steady drumbeat of their annoyance at what the Americans and the British and the Australians and the Japanese and the Koreans are all doing all the time. Um, that's been a steady drumbeat. So that's, uh, well, I'm sure that this will all continue in the future. So let's turn, uh, turn the topic a little bit. Let's talk about unmanned systems. Uh, it was an interesting year. There was a, in April, the Navy held its first, its largest ever battle problem, integrating manned and unmanned systems. It was off the Southern California coast. Um, it was a lot of service platforms, some undersea stuff, and some and, and aviation stuff. Was this really important? Was it just kind of a flash in the pan? Was this a harbinger of things to come? What do you all think? Sam, uh, why don't you take this one? I think the one thing that kind of crystallized for me this year was was how far on man has yet to go in uh, a, a real kind of clear articulation of like what exactly it's going to mean to the force moving forward. Um, I think probably the most significant thing for me was seeing some of those uh, experimentations for the Ranger and the Nomad. Those are the two converted offshore support vessels uh, that they've kind of wired up into uh, with like commercial standards uh, with a with a commercial standard hull with, you know, a level of autonomous uh, systems and mission packages, which are essentially a bunch of Connex boxes that you strap to the back of the stuff. Yeah, ghost fleet stuff. Um, and the fact that they're starting to do some, uh, uh, I think that Spy 6 shot that they had, uh, I think was really interesting. You essentially have a containerized 
uh, anti-ship missile or anti-air missile that you could fire on remote. Um, what's that? SM6. What did I say? I said spice. Did I say spy six? I meant SM six. I, I I am just all turned around today. SM six missile as opposed to missile missile. I'm sorry. Uh, and the the queuing was from a spy six. I I, I was led to believe, You're or right. I believe we reported at the time. Um, the uh, the air and missile defense radar uh, that is found right. on the flight three uh, DDGs that are uh, rolling out right now, and and that was interesting. And I think you know instead of the uh, hey, unmanned's going to do everything for you. Uh, I think we're starting to see kind of the edges uh, and the limitations of what unmanned is, but we're also starting to see some of the promise as, hey, can I have a low cost platform with a containerized missile that can go and pop something on a remote queue with a minimum crew or or a crew that can be uh, either ribbed off or heloed off if they need to be. That That is really interesting as opposed to you know, uh, an arsenal ship uh, with tons and tons of stuff on it that it costs a gazillion dollars uh, on the surface stuff. I think that's I think that's really interesting. I, I think it's also really interesting some of the stuff that they're playing with with some of these smaller um, unmanned underwater systems like variations on the uh, the Mark 18. Uh, it's essentially a torpedo sized uh, container that can uh, have all sorts of different. Um, components on the uh, interior and uh, the EOD guys have been using it. The minesweeping guys have been using it and they're starting to have some more applications that uh, potentially could be uh, a little bit more wider in terms of ISR. Uh, and I think that's an interesting space to watch uh, in terms of the big stuff for unmanned underwater stuff. I mean, that's a black box. I, I couldn't tell you anything. They're not, they're not saying anything about that. Marcus. Yeah. I echo on what Sam said. I'll, I'll, I'll maybe you guys handle more of the un, the uh, under underwater and surface. I'll talk a little bit maybe about the air, um, but you know I think we're, we're still yet to see um, to kind of build on a point I made earlier. How much how much uh, this administration wants to invest in this? How much you want to rely on it? How much it's going to count against the ship count? Um, whether or not the ship count sticks around or doesn't stick around. Um, Oh, who cares? <laughs> in the, you know, to to maybe, and uh, how much autonomy are we gonna, or how much autonomy are they gonna have? How much decision making are they are they gonna are gonna be able to make? Um, and then, you know, in the air, I think for for me, one of the things, you know, aside from MQ twenty five with the refueling with with the refueling mission, do you start looking at anything beyond that? Do you also you have the Air Force now starting to. Uh, they're out there. Uh, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall is talking about two new drone programs uh, along the lines of this loyal wingman. We've heard about these, you know, drones that fly along with manned aircraft. Right. Um, you know, the Air Force is talking about it for fighter jets for a while now. They're talking about doing it with their bombers. You know, does the Navy do the same from from the, the from the uh, carrier strike group? Do they figure out a way to incorporate um, uh, incorporate these type of systems as well? Um, until you know their next generation aircraft, uh, whether that's the same as what the Air Force is doing, whether it's not, who knows? Um, but you know, hopefully, hopefully in 2021 we'll get some more clarity in these areas. Cervello. Yeah, I would say for me though, it, it, you know, as 2021 as a as a barometer of you know unmanned health, um, I, I think we're behind to to Sam's point. Um, you know, it was 
all, I, I guess all feedback that we heard was that it was a successful exercise. You see lots of tactical level experiments. Um, but I, you know, in 2020, there was a lot of talk, as Marcus said, about unmanned counting against the, the, the ship number or the, the forester assessment had, had, um, you, you know, talked about some number of man and some number of unmanned ships. I just, boy, I, I don't see us, if 2021 is an indicator, I don't see us getting to a point where we would start counting unmanned platforms against a forced posture assessment for a decade or longer. Um, so I, I think, you know, 2021 showed us that there are a lot of good ideas out there, but that um, we're kind of behind when it comes to putting those ideas into practice, uh, at least in, in the in the surface world. Um, in the in the air world, I mean, there there was some progress made on the MQ twenty five. I mean, we kind of finished up, uh, you know, with the Stingray operating on board George H W Bush, which a lot of people that are carrier savvy say is really the hardest part of this whole thing is is figuring out how to work uh, a manned and unmanned flight deck together. Right. So in that regard, it, it it you know it's it seems as a positive. But in terms of netting all this together, I think we still have a long way to go. You know, to build on that for one second, uh, you know, the, to maybe said another way, how are we all going to operationalize all this stuff? You know, that, that's th these are all concepts largely, and you know, wh what is the plan? And then again, how? And to, I, I, I'm always beating the budget drum, but you know, how do you fund it? How do you make it a program of record? You know, if you have to choose between a DDG and 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 funding, you know, an un, an unmanned program, what's Congress going to do? There's always no, I, push me uh, pull you. Okay. Yeah, no, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta echo with Marcus. Uh, I mean, I think this has been kind of the universal issue uh, moving forward when you're dealing with, you know, sort of the underlying meat behind the last two or three years of national security strategy, which is well, what is it y'all want to do? And you're talking about, you're emphasizing these individual capabilities, but you know, specifically on the Navy side, there's no sort of overarching idea as to how all of this is supposed to kind of fit together and you push people on the specifics on it and they sprinkle dmo or you know distributed maritime operations on stuff which you know we have a very very limited understanding of what exactly it is you know the goals of that program are uh and and i think that's kind of the thing that's gives me pause when it comes to you know understanding the efficacy of any of these programs moving forward so it's like what is it you want to do with them right. and that's you know moving forward into 22 i hope someone can come up with you know and i, I think this is a point that's that's kind of stressed over and over but like hey what is it y'all want to do exactly that would be really helpful at some point to sort of articulate that before you know we embark on all of these other programs the real problem i think in in that is it strikes me that is well number one you have to convince Congress that this is worth the investment and it's there's this push me pull you going on which I find absolutely maddening the people who want to move fast let's go let's make mistakes let's go out there let's learn let's get it going and then there's this other side that says oh no hold on we have to test and we have to test and we have to test and we have to test in artificial environments and you can't we're not going to give you any money till you spend a lot of time and spending all the uh, figuring that out and you can't have it both ways you just simply can't and there's a, an awful lot of program people who are dying to move forward there's an awful lot of people in congress who want everybody to stop and uh, i you, you chafe at some of this stuff where oh there's no reliability we don't have testing on that 
the program people will say these components and there's there's it, it's incredibly complex stuff there's there are dozens of subheadings sub topics sub issues sub components that go together into making these things but a lot of these things are, have been out in industry for quite some time and 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 industry is the best harbinger of all really if it doesn't work if it's not reliable it costs money and they won't do it so you know you have a number of systems that industry is okay with it we're happy with it we're buying things and if you go out in the commercial world there's all kinds of applications that are going on right now on big small i mean there are serious cargo cape carrying ships that are being built that are unmanned there are a lot of there's all kinds of systems and and yet they're okay and Congress is not. We want more testing. Okay. So I, I, to, to me, that seems to be the biggest block of all. Let's move on. Um, the, uh, let's talk about those darn pacing threats. Yeah, the, the, the people who just won't stop. Number one, the Chinese. Number two, the Russians. Number three, the Iranians. And maybe North Korea again. And then whoever else wants to rear their ugly head. Um, China obviously is the is the number one thing that people talk about and look at, the unbelievable growth of the Chinese Navy, the phenomenal investment there that they are making in that Navy. They're building up a Navy as fast as anyone ever has, frankly, since the Germans before World War One. And then you look at the Russians, who are don't have nearly the numbers that the Chinese have, and can't build that fast, but they are putting out quite a number of very capable new submarines um, of, a, of a variety of designs with a variety of different weapon systems on board, as well as small combatants. And the small combatants are armed with cruise missiles and the Zircon hypersonic weapon is, has been tested a number of times from a number of platforms. It's, uh, it's, it's subsea, it's a surface, and nobody else has anything like that. Nobody's even approaching um, actual real life testing. And they've had a pretty busy year putting that, 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 that weapon system out there. So these things are driving nominally what the U.S. should be doing in response. So Cervello, what, I mean, when you see the Chinese and the Russians, um, what's, the, what's their right response? Some people now are starting to talk about we should, we should just quit being forward deployed. It's too expensive. We can't compete. Let's just come home. Uh, we'll just go out when it's necessary. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I, I mean, we've talked a little bit about that. I I, I don't think that that's the the answer. Uh, all due respect to uh, you know uh, the Honorable Bob work because um, I don't think we have that that luxury. Um, I, I think the Chinese and the and the Russians are going to make um, they're going to make it very difficult uh, for uh, the United States military, both difficult in how we deal with them now, but also in terms of how we figure out where we want to go. Um, in the next five years, the next 15 years and, and beyond um, be, because of those pacing threats. And in fact, I, I would say that they've even moved, you know, I, I don't know what the next level is beyond pacing, but I mean, they, I, I think that they're, um, they've moved beyond us and, and, you know, maybe they're chasing threats at, at this point because we're, we're having to chase them. Now, when you do talk to people in uniform, they, they try to reassure you that our high end stuff, the stuff that we don't necessarily talk or they don't necessarily talk about and that we don't necessarily know that much about that we're still in, in good stead, um, that it's that 
sort of higher end operational um, level of war uh, stuff that um, that that is is where the Chinese and the, and the Russians are are doing better than we are, and and that to catch up there may not be as hard as uh, as, as folks like us want to make it out to be. I'm not sure I I'm not sure I buy that number one and number two. Uh, for me, uh, what what worries me is that um, it it makes conflict all the more likely in, in my mind. Uh, I guess I'm still one of those folks that, that was hoping and is hoping that we can figure a way to compete without having this conflict or competition go hot. Uh, and the more the Chinese and the Russians um, exceed uh, our capability, um, you know, development, I think the more likely conflict is in the next 10 or so years. And, and that worries me. Marcus. I think, you know, Chris alluded to it. You know, I, I'm, I'm curious this year is whether or not we see some of this stuff in the classified world come on the other side of the curtain. I mean, we started to see, we saw that a little bit with, you know, the next generation air dominance in the air force and, you know, that the, 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 the B-21 bomber is supposed to get unveiled this year. But I mean, what else? I mean, you, the, the, the classified budget's huge. There's a lot of stuff there. Everyone, you know, and to Chris's point, people, you know, people in, in military keep telling us, you know, yeah, well, we got, we got stuff we just can't talk about. Well, you know, the stuff you can talk about isn't, you know, you, you give what three, uh, hypersonic tests that didn't go very well, uh, with, um, the, uh, um, blanking on the name of it, but the, uh, I think aero, um, air to air, um, uh, weapon. So, you know, do, do you, do you start in, you know, to, do you start, uh, narrowing down what, uh, the, the hypersonic programs, for instance, do you say like, okay, we're only going to focus on X, Y, and Z instead of, you know, the, however many there are right now, um, and uh, yeah, again, just to hammer home that point about the, the the classified stuff, is there is there electronic something electronic warfare related? Is there something hypersonic related that we just don't know about? That's there. Sam, I think there's a lot of uh, unknowns for sure as to what exactly these counters are, and I think the other thing that you know when we're talking about you know the pacing threat or the pacing challenge, uh, we don't have a really good articulated view for good or for ill on what exactly it is that the Chinese are, are particularly good at in the naval arena. Um, we've heard about the hypersonic tests. That's interesting. We've heard about the, you know, the DF-21s and the DF-26 and the carrier killer missiles. Um, we don't know the efficacy of those weapons. Um, you know, the Russians have always been really good at EW. They're really good at submarines. How far ahead or behind we are, I don't I don't have a good sense of that. Um, I don't have a good sense of, of the Russian threat or the Chinese threat. And that, you know, and when you push that question, you run into these, like, classification issues where, uh, you know, everyone complains it's overclassified in terms of understanding what the threat is. Right. And then you get these really sort of vague... Uh, statements from leadership like, okay, was that a Sputnik moment? I wouldn't quite call it a Sputnik moment, but almost a Sputnik moment. What's almost a Sputnik moment? I don't understand what that means. You know, I have no real good clarity at, from the building 
as to how worried I should or shouldn't be. And it's all this sort of this vague, you know, and and, and none of that's percolating to the Hill, too, to, to be honest. We're not we're not getting a whole lot of sense from Congress. You know, there's, there's a vague, vague dread as to the potential Russian and the Chinese threat. But like how articulated is that and how well understood that is even on the U.S. side? I don't know. Um, you know, all right, let's look at a, a, a Chinese uh, destroyer. So what do I what do I see? What do I know about it? I know it's probably pretty slow. You know, they, 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 they haven't gotten really good at maritime gas turbines. Uh, they got a lot of ELS cells. They have something that looks like in, you know, a, a, a Acer radar uh that that looks like an interesting you know solid state air search you know capability but i i don't i don't have a really good sense of you know what it is i should be worried about and and i guess you know that that might be a cop-out in terms of a question but like i don't even have like sort of a point of departure as to like what should i be fretting about i hear about ai and i hear about hypersonics and i think the ai component of it is interesting we did a story this year that really, I think, helped us because we got a translated white paper from uh, some Chinese scholars. And one of the things that they were talking about uh, was this is what the uh, PLA is really interested in, uh, artificial intelligence, is because they want to suck up all of the information they can about U.S. operations and create a, a battle aid for commanders. So now I have a battle aid that kind of helps me think about how an American thinks uh, because uh, we've already conceded the point that we're not going to be able to train an officer as well as the U.S., so we need to be able to like solve this problem with computers. I'm like, oh, okay, that's a clear, articulated way that the Chinese are going to be using something. Uh, but like, you know, where am I? I'm not hearing that from from the U.S. in terms of um, that that thing that the Chinese want to use artificial intelligence for, what I'm hearing that from is from the Chinese themselves. So so sorry to hammer that point, but this overclassification is killing me. No, I, I mean, playing off that, I, I kind of agree that the only way, and this is, there's a lot of things people talk about, there's a lot of things people don't talk about. But some of this stuff with the Chinese, this growth is coming at major enormous cost. And we don't hear about the problems that they have. We hear a lot about our problems, Number one, because we have a very interested media and an interested Congress who wants to hear about the problems. And the same thing really in most of the Western countries. But the Chinese control their own media. You don't hear about their problems. So if they're going to build, they have 20 destroyers under construction right now. Uh, eight, eight of the big type 055s, the Nanjings, and uh, 12 52Ds are, are under construction. All those ships are going to get commissioned at about the same time. Where are you going to get those crews? Where are you going to get those commanding officers? Where are you going to get all those, all those division heads? Where are you all get, going to get that logistical supply chain? They have problems too, folks. You think we have problems? They have problems too. Um, who's going to support them? Do they do they know how to how to fix that much stuff? If there was a design flaw, and you know there was a design flaw in everything they're doing, nobody builds anything for the first time that's an incredibly huge, complex thing and gets it all right. They don't. And Whatever problems are in those classes and those designs are in all those ships. They're not evolving. They're not, they're not, they're not building them slow, slow enough to find some problems and get, to get a fix and put those fixes into subsequent ships. They're all being commissioned. That's how they build them so fast. They're all being commissioned with the same flaws. We just don't know what they are. We don't hear about it. Um, 
and the, the same thing about dogma they put out an awful lot of videos of their own crews here we are on board the destroyer or whatever the frigate this we're going through exercises they are as stilted and as rehearsed and as robotic as you could possibly be in terms of talking about what they're doing in terms of, of what you see them when they're doing operations here's the procedure you follow the procedure you do not deviate it's the only way you train so many people so fast so they're not able to think for themselves or adapt the worry i have really is do we have a u.s navy that can think for itself and adapt or are we going to do the same thing all the time? They know our behavior better than we know our behavior. They study it more. They know our tendencies. And Americans are just as, just as uh, liable as anybody else to fall into a comfort zone and keep doing the same old thing until somebody figures it out. And time and again, when people have, have caught the Americans with their pants down, that's the way it's happened. The Americans just kept doing something. Somebody went, aha. I think I'll shoot down that 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 F117 up there because those idiots do the same thing all the time. So and and that was not a sophisticated operation. So people shouldn't have that much reliability on things. Anyway, we're going to move on because we are there you know there's just too darn much to talk about. So let's go from from outside to inside, inside the beltway. Uh-oh. So what a fun year this has been. Took forever to get a SECNAV. There's what we just got nominated uh, uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research Development and Acquisition. Um, there's, or was that the act or the under? The under just got the act, right? The under just got uh, nominated. There's been no under. There's been no ASNR DNA. Um, we just got a secretary. All these acting people and all these people performing the duties of, well, you know what? <laughs> there's just no continuity in that. It's nice, good for them. It's not their fault. But it's a bad way to run a run a run a business, run a government, run a navy. So, how the how the navy do this year? What do you think in Washington, Marcus? I want to correct real quick one thing I said earlier: the air launch rapid response weapon is not an air to air weapon. It is an air to ground weapon that can fly at speeds of Mach twenty if it can ever fly. So there we there we go, um, Chris. You just hit the nail on nail on the, the head right there. Like, are, are we gonna are, are we gonna get any people in any of these positions? And it, it, you know, if we get nominees, is, is is the Senate ever gonna actually confirm them? Oh, by the way, we're gonna have this this uh, you know continuing resolution that goes until you know February, and that's right around the corner, I guess, at this point. So then, so then what, you know, is, is Congress going to get anything, anything done this year? And, you know, frankly, are we, are we going to see some, some more nominees? It's, it's, we, we finally, it's going to be a year that there's been no one in the acquisition under secretary for acquisition right. uh, and sustainment office amid, you know, a supply chain crisis amid inflation. Let's we could, we could talk, we could do a whole podcast on inflation about what, what this means. You know, everyone's been poo-pooing it and dismissing it for the past, you know, six months. And all of a sudden now, you know, the, the, the Navy, just like all the services are likely going to have to have a pretty huge personnel bill in the next budget because in the budget request that we expect in February, because everyone's going to need cost of living increases to, to meet, which is going to be like double of what, you know, two point whatever percent in previous years. It looks like they're going to have to have at least a four point something percent raise coming in, in um, 23. So, I mean, it, it, for in, inside the beltway, you know, it, 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 it'd be, we have to watch Congress and see whether or not Congress is uh, going to do its job. Sam. 
Yeah, I'm I'm going to put my marker down and say uh, I'm giving it 60-40 odds that we're going to have a year-long continuing resolution. Uh, uh, I'm going to I'm going to say uh, uh, I, I I don't I don't see it uh, I don't see the 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 political uh, motivation to go and like pass the uh, the 22 budget by any stretch of the imagination. And we didn't talk about Build Back Better whether or not they try to try to do that in the beginning of the year so i mean that that could further you know kick the can on this to to your point so yeah the defense I, I mean the defense budget at this moment is is you know in terms of uh the sense that i'm getting from the white house is is not their priority uh i think the other thing is is you know uh it, the we have a secretary of the Navy now, but like RDA is going to be a big deal. And Marcus is right. Personnel is also going to be a big deal, too, because, you know, if you're staffing up and you're going to do any kind of if you're going to do any kind of like real growth in the fleet, you're going to have to get human beings behind it. And that's the sort of the, the dirty little secret that we never talk about is like, Chris, you uh, you might know this better. Uh, Servillo, you might know this better than me, but. Isn't it something like 25,000 humans the Navy has to ingest a year in order to be functional? Yeah, 35,000. 35,000. It brings in 35,000 and loses 35,000 each year. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you've already got like a ton of churn and like on the personnel side and um, all of this new stuff coming online. And then you have to radically shift on how you train and these people and and on and on and on and on and on and you have this real these real granular problems that have to be paid for like right now and nobody's even talking about the fundamental acquisition of just defense materiel regardless of you know the kind of the the, the backflips you have to do to get the people ready in order to to man any of this so I, there's no incentive I, I i don't see anyone's incentive to sort of jump up and down and say hey this needs to get done and then you know that's up to the uh, secretary of the navy who is starting to make the right noises but he has no support he has a as an acting rda um he doesn't have an under you know where is the where is the naval caucus uh in Congress backing them up. Uh, I'm not hearing a ton of stuff. I mean, I think there's some folks that are starting to step up a little bit on the Senate side uh, to go and, and say some stuff um, to to, to kind of advocate for, you know, some of the, uh, the Navy stuff. But again, like, it, it, you know, I'm still seeing just everyone marking time in the status quo and no momentum in any particular direction. No sense of urgency. Mr. Savello, what do you think? Yeah, I mean that—that's the real concern, Chris, is the the lack of seriousness and lack of sense of urgency, right? I mean, we we just talked about all of the challenges and opportunities that the Navy has um, from a from a fleet or an operational standpoint. We talked about the two um, main and and two sort of minor uh, competitors that uh, the United States Navy faces, you know, all over the world. Um, you know, it, it kind of paints a, a, a bleak, if not, you know, very serious picture in terms of what uh, we're dealing with um, from a military standpoint. And, and then, you know, you don't have a budget, you don't have people in key positions, you, you don't really have a naval strategy. Um, and so it, I mean, I, for the listeners, you don't mean to be all doom and gloom, but until there is a, um, I, I guess, a, a, until the leadership takes this serious, it's hard not to be doom and gloom. It's hard not to point out um, the shortcomings be because it doesn't seem like 
um, the folks whose job it is to put their arms around these tough problems, one, have the resources that they need to do it, and two, that you have a full team to be able to do it. And so until somebody, the White House, Congress, the folks in the Pentagon, until somebody kind of takes that baton and, and really runs with it, we're kind of left with a bit of doom and gloom. Right. All right. Well, on that festive note, we're going to, everybody gets now a chance to do a prediction for the coming year. So what y'all think? So let's start with the excitement of Sam Legrone. I like that. The excitement of Sam Legrone. Um, I think you in 2022, particularly in the Middle East, you are going to see an incident or a series of incident that are really going to test the relationship between the merchant uh, uh, the, the merchant shipping and, uh, you know, navies of the world akin to, uh, however the Iranians decide to go about, uh, trying to skirt sanctions. And I think you're going to see maybe not an ever given episode, but, but you're going to see something pretty gnarly, uh, in terms of, uh, Iran doing something massively provocative. Uh, and by Iran, I mean the IRGC uh, doing something massively provocative in the region. That's my guess. Marcus. I'm going to steal Sam's. I think you're going to have a full year CR, but I also think you're going to have, you know, the, the Congress will d do the Pentagon a solid and, you know, help it out with, you know, we've already seen, you know, an ano anomalies or whatever they're called these days, you know, where they, they are able to award new contracts and such, and they'll help them out where they, where, where they can help them out. But I don't think, at least for the rest of the federal government, you're going to see a full year budget. Cervello. So I think 2021 is the year of the combatant commander. I think with all of the chaos and uh, uncertainty in DC, I think you're going to see combatant commanders and those civilians who support support combatant commanders just kind of do everything that they can do within their authorities um, to continue to get ready, continue to deal with these uh, threats. Um, and I actually think you're going to see things within the beltway get worse. I think you're going to continue to um, not hear. I, I think that's a double or a triple negative. I don't think you will hear more from the CNO. I don't think you will see much out of the Secretary of the Navy. I don't think you will suddenly see Congress uh, pay attention. So I think it gets worse in the Pentagon and in DC. I think it gets better uh, out in the combatant commanders as they realize how dire things are if we don't get serious. Well, I think uh, from an inside the Beltway point of view, uh, you're going to hear a lot, an awful lot, about the horrors of dealing with those dreaded legacy systems today's warfighters are forced to put up with and why the Navy should get rid of dozens of ships, cruisers, littoral combat ships, high-speed transports, amphibious transport docks, even destroyers. Well, as far as I'm concerned, don't buy it, literally. Life is about stages and different degrees of capabilities. The last thing everyone needs is an all-modern Navy that ages out all at the same time. I cringe every time I hear that. We need to divest ourselves of legacy platforms. We're going to hear it a lot. I think it's a false hope. And in my eyes, anyway, entirely the wrong thing to be doing at the wrong time. So on that happy, festive note, I would like to thank our guest today, Sam Legrone of USNI News and Marcus Weisgerber of Defense One. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks.
Well, that does it for this week and for this year. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, the podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. We'll be back the first weekend of January, and we look forward to being with you in a better and brighter 2022. Thanks, folks. Hey.